Hello, everybody, and welcome to Breaking, a baseball news podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. I'm Tim Jackson, here with TC Zenka. TC, how are you today? You know, I am so good. You know, whenever I want now, I can just turn on the TV, and there is horrible, horrible baseball on ESPN. Spring training is a, it's a great time of year, isn't it? Just it's awful baseball, not, round the clock, round the clock. And it's one of those where even the worst baseball is the, the best day. So, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the one thing is, like, I wish announcers would say who the players are. Just say who the players are nonstop. I don't know who any of these guys are. I can't, <laughs> I can't tell by the look of them. There's, just now I saw a play where the Phillies left fielder robbed a grand slam. And I don't know who it was. I don't know who the heck just made that play. It was a great play. Skilled baseballman. Uh, and in that vein, there is some, some news trickling out this week. That another skilled baseballman, Juan Soto, uh, has been approached by the Washington Nationals for uh, an extension, presumably, right? The best young hitter in baseball. Uh, yeah, that, I'm going to make the claim that he's better than Acuna, that uh, he's, he's better than anyone else coming up right now, Tatis. I'm going to say Juan Soto is, is the guy. Uh, so there's news trickling out that, uh, you know, he's been approached with an extension, turned it down. Uh, he's... A, generational guy at this point is what it really looks like he could be so um tc how do you how do you receive news like this that juan soto is being approached with a mega contract extension i mean soto is he's 22 years old now i think and he's already a mythical figure in baseball it's kind of crazy people talk about him there's you know jason Starr came out with the article this week comparing him to ted williams people don't really bat an eye at that I mean, the fact that he's up there in the conversation with Acuna and with Tatis, given that he's kind of a, a, you know, I don't want to call him a plotting right fielder, but he's kind of a plotting right fielder as far as, as far as, you know, baseball stereotypes go or baseball archetypes go. And his just, his skill at the plate is just, it's kind of unrivaled right now. And to have a guy with that kind of talent who's already accomplished as much as he has, I mean, it's no small thing that he won the World Series in 2019 and that he was a gigantic part of that series. I mean, the the Nats were, as they always are, a very top-heavy team. And Soto was – it was Soto and Rendon in that lineup. And there wasn't a whole lot – I mean, they had other other guys, of course, but Soto had big hit after big hit from the, uh, you know, the, the two-run wacky single off of Hader in the wildcard game. He hit, you know, back-to-back home runs, him and Rendon, off of Kershaw. In the, in the deciding game against the against the Dodgers to knock out the Dodgers, you know, one of the few teams who have actually knocked out the Dodgers in recent years. He then homered off of Garrett Cole, pretty much calling a shot against the Astros. He hit that uh, he had that great moment of, the, of dropping the bat, m- mocking uh, Alex Bregman. I mean, dude was 20 years old, 21 years old. He turned 21 at the end of that series, and he's already a legend. How do you extend a guy like that? I mean, he's already arbitration eligible. He's already making $8 million this year. I just don't know that they're going to be able to find a, a price point that works. I kind of, I mean, I hope they will, but with Scott Boris is his agent, and Boris actually has a very good relationship with the Nationals. He's worked out pre-free agency extensions before. He, they worked on Boris and the Nats agreed on a Strasburg extension before he hit free agency. They've also, you know, Boris represents Max Scherzer, and Anthony Rendon and Bryce Harper. So the learners, the owners of the, of the Nats have been through this with Boris a number of times. They should know what the price point is. They should know kind of where they're at in a deal. If I'm a Nats fan, the thing that makes me feel positive about it is that there is, 
that working relationship is strong and that just because they don't get a deal done today or next week or next year doesn't mean that he won't eventually sign long-term in Washington. Uh, you know, as was the case with Strasburg, reaching free agency the second time and, you know, bringing him back anyways. But I don't know what that price point would be. I mean, it would be more than Tatis, right? I mean. Well, so I, I think it would be, but I think that there, like, there's really a lot to unpack here. And you really you did a nice job hitting on all these points. Uh, first of all, the, the Jason Stark article that came out in The Athletic, uh, worth taking a peek at if you haven't yet, um, just goes through really everything. He He goes through really in a Jason Stark sort of way, goes through all the different things that Soto's done to this point uh, with numbers, with uh, walk rate through 21, with walk rate and Homer through 21, with WRC plus through 21 by lefties, uh, more walks than whiffs. Uh, he also goes through and he speaks to people who, who spoke, uh, not spoke to, but have played with or interacted with Ted Williams uh, as a manager at various levels. And, Nobody's really denying it, like you were saying. Nobody's really putting up a fight or, or raising a beef about Juan Soto not being on the level of Ted Williams. And uh, so that does kind of bring us to uh, well, where the news first started was Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post. Uh, yeah. Yep, yeah, well, the Washington Post, a uh, very difficult paper name to remember, but uh, <laughs> we've done it here today. So uh, that story came out through Jesse Doherty. Uh, we have the the Stark piece coming together, and I think Scott Boris is really an interesting starting point for all of this because, uh, well, all right, so before we dig into why I think it's interesting, <laughs> what are your uh, objective thoughts on Scott Boris as an agent? He's the best agent in baseball and maybe in all of sports. I mean, he does, for all his talk, he does, and for all the talk around him, he does an amazing job getting his clients money, which is his job, right? That is his, his really only job is to get his, his clients as much money and as much long-term security as he can. And he does an amazing job on that, on that front. And he does it in a way that I think really listens to the player. You have seen him work out. Extent. I mean, as much as we think of him as a guy who always takes a player to free agency and he does like to do that because that's the way to get, that's typically the the lane to to the it's highest earning power. He uh, he has signed deals with guys who want to. He does listen to his players and he does uh, find them the deal that they want. And for the most part, he wins. He always wins. He gets he gets great deals for his players. Very few, even maybe a couple of years ago when the free agent market was just utter despair. He ran into some issues. Um, and ultimately, it still worked out in the big picture, which I think is what he always does a really good job of kind of analyzing. Um, you know, he, he, I'm not sure people realize, like he employs a full analytical department, just like a lot of teams do. Uh, he, he has facilities just like teams do for his guys. And he really does, I, I think, the impression that I've gotten over the years from reading various pieces, hearing different things, is that he does absolutely prioritize the players it's not just about like putting a wedge in between them and the fan base for the sake of some money uh, and there's a really interesting quote uh, that he had I think it was last year uh, or in the wake of the Ronald Acuna Jr. deal and the Ozzy Albies deal which we talked about even last week being just wildly 
misrepresentative of what that kind of talent would generally fetch, right? Calling those kinds of contracts snuff contracts in the sense that it snuffs out the player's ability to to earn it. it while the players are trying to maximize generally, it, it kind of minimized it, right? Like the Acuna deal is what, like 8, 124 or something ridiculous by the end of it? Um, I think maybe it's 10 even less years. than that. I think it's like 100 million flat I think it's over... Eight- over yeah, like seven. eight one hundred and then ten one twenty four. Yeah, with options, which is just like mind numbing, almost like holy, holy crap. Um, so now that we've got this on the table, uh, in regards to both uh, his willingness to listen to players, sometimes including, you know, I want to stay here, get me a contract here. Uh, in light of the historical comps and how do we possibly wrestle with this, uh, we have some other reference points, right? But let's let's take a minute before we get to Fernando Tatis and his deal that he just signed. Would it be fair to say that Mike Trout was too old when he signed his last extension to compare in this deal? That he was what twenty eight uh, when he signed for twelve three forty? Yeah, he was on the older older side. But I also think you have to use it to compare because there are only so many contracts that are going to hit in this area. I mean, it's isn't Trout deal along with Garrett Cole still the the highest AAV? in history yep. right so if you're not using that to compare to what are you going to look at there's not much else i think that's i i didn't really consider that you said it and it was like oh that makes so much sense that there's really only so many contracts to compare right so finding it's almost like we have to as we chip away at this we might not get like a a, a perfect comp which is really maybe the best way to describe soto as a player to this point right that it, like you he is that unique. You can't quite lay him out there the same way you would, uh, like, like you were mentioning, even in, in prep, like there's the Bogarts deal for, um, for Trey Turner, right? There's kind of a framework there in yeah. terms of what to do. But when it comes to Soto, not quite. So we already just went over how the, uh, the Acuna and Albies deals are nowhere near what this ballpark will be, right? Especially with Boris in the, in the negotiating room. Um, you mentioned the Tatis deal not being enough. Is So is it a starting point for you? Yeah, I think probably. It, the thing about the Tatis deal is that it, it does buy out at least one pre-arbitration season, right? Uh, yeah. Right, so that's it gives him a little bit of a head start over Soto. But it's only one year difference, so you can kind of get in the ballpark there. I think that the, you ultimately need to add... I don't know however much to to Soto's deal to make it worth it for him. He also Soto's also a super two player, so uh, technically the use of control left are are the same or or close to the same. There's Soto has three more seasons of arbitration, I guess is what I mean. So can I can I pause you for a second, uh, knowing that you you actually just wrote up uh, a good piece at MLBTR right about Soto about Turner uh, for the Nationals. Uh, and you mentioned Super 2 there, too. Can you just, for, for everybody's sake, give us a, a brief hit on what Super 2 is? Because it's one of those phrases that gets marched around, but I don't know that everybody always knows what it means. Yeah, so typically, uh, baseball free agents or baseball players reach for agency after six seasons. And after three, three seasons, they become arbitration eligible. So that's when they're basically getting their first raise. There is a subset of players. I think it's the it's like the top. 17% or something like that. I can't remember the exact number. Um, but by, uh, by, um, by service time, basically if you have more than two years and less than more than two years of service time and less than three years of service time, 
they take the top 17% of those players or so, and they give them an extra season of arbitration eligibility. So instead of becoming a free agent after six years, you become a free agent after seven years, but also you become arbitration eligible in an early season. So Soto, in this case, he's only been in the league for two plus seasons, but he gets he's now arbitration eligible a year early. So he's had two seasons of playing for the minimum and where normally he'd have a third year because he's at 2.134 days of service time. And there's usually a cutoff that's kind of around that mark, 2.14, something like that. Changes every year, right? Changes every year. Um, he was able to go to arbitration this year. So he's now making $8 million this year instead of making the minimum, which is a huge deal. Yeah, that, so it's designed really to to kind of help both parties, right? If we wanted to look at it that way, where it does help the player earn more sooner, but it also does get the team another year for control if they don't mind paying up for that extra year of control and arbitration, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean it does mean that the his salaries are going to get really high. Uh, Chris Bryant is one of these guys, right, who's now $20 million in arbitration, it's hard to find the right once you get the, this far into arbitration with these super two players. It's very hard to find the right amount for an extension because they're already making so much. You don't really have anything to give as the team, right? You don't really have any leverage anymore because they're already making so much and they're so close to free agency that the likelihood of finding a, a point that makes sense extension wise is, is very slim. So for the Nats, there really is probably a very small window where this year, maybe next year, if they can work something out. They'll do their best to, but once once Soto gets a year or two away from free agency, you know, assuming a, a normal race, he'll be making fifteen million next year. He'll probably start breaking records the year after that. He could be a thirty million dollar guy by the time his his last season before arbitration. And once you get that close to the open market, there's just no reason to sign an extension. Right, because you've already made enough to feel secure. Where it's like you're already probably still awesome given that super two guys are generally younger right because they're right like they they really do embody that that spirit of like elite players are always elite and that that's soto to a t really and so what you're saying is really that the for as far out from free agency as juan soto is there is legitimate urgency here to get a deal done now yeah i think if the nats want to sign him long term I think they have to soon. And I'm not sure that the Nats worry about it that much because the Nats have shown they're one of the kind of kind of one of the few teams who have shown they're okay paying market price for for a guy to keep a guy, which means that both an extension is possible because they are willing to make they are probably willing to make sort of the highest played player in the game, which is what it would take to sign them to an extension at this point. But they're also willing to kind of play it out. And I think for them, the question is, you know, how much money can you really save? signing him early now, whereas like, you know, Juan Soto this season at $8 million is a gigantic bargain. Juan Soto next season at $15 million is going to be a huge bargain. Juan Soto, if he's making $30 million in his final season of arbitration, that's still a bargain. Like they're still getting above market price for all these seasons. So, you know, even for the Nats, what do you want to give up for those four seasons of getting Soto at above market price? How much do you want to actually give back? Yeah, you, so you hit on something that I find kind of fascinating. Like the, no matter what you pay Soto, he'll still be a bargain. That's pretty much true, regardless, right? For a player of that quality, and even for a lot of players a little less than that quality, it's true that the value never really shakes out. When we like to do 
because our brains love nice, clean-cut things in terms of kind of uh, pegging these contracts, when we, when we do a war to dollar value, it never really shakes out that way. That's why we're kind of seeing like even the other extensions sign, like the, the bets extension uh, with the Dodgers for 12365 the Stanton contract that he signed with the Marlins in 2014, 13325 Like We're really not too far off in these numbers when it comes down to it, if you consider... Uh, what the game has done in terms of growth and profitability and all of that. And like even like you mentioned last year, Soto was worth uh, two and a half wins through the through Fangraph's war. Uh, and that was in just 47 games. Uh, he was worth five pretty much the season before and 150, worth four and 116 in 2018. So you see you see kind of like the growth and the, the steps forward here. I mean, he's already like it comes up in that Stark article in The Athletic. I'm looking at it and just kind of giggling. He, he had a pretty much a 21% walk rate and a 14% K rate. You could probably count on your hands the amount of guys who have who play a, enough games to qualify who have the walk rate that's higher than the K rate, right? So, yeah, I mean, that's why it's so hard to extend Soto right now. His season last year, shortened season, but it was insane. He had a 490 on base percentage. A 490 on base percentage over 47 games. It wasn't a small amount. And he had a season delayed because of a, a positive COVID test. So he didn't get in there. He tested positive on opening day, right? Or it was a day or two before opening day. So he didn't have a chance to ramp up to get himself quite ready. And he still jumped in there and got on base 50% of the time. Like, yeah. It's just an, it's, he's just an insane player right now. He is. And, and just for, for points of reference, uh, Soto led the league in walk rate last year. Uh, Bryce Harper also had 20% walk rate and fewer Ks. Uh, Aaron Hicks did it in 54 games. Uh, the margin was much slimmer than 7%, though, between walk rate and strikeout rate. Um, who else here? I mean, just running down the list, Carlos Santana in his, like, renaissance season. Uh, he was an interesting guy that did it. Freddie Freeman did it. Uh, Anthony Rendon, like... The best of the best, and Soto's at the top of the list. And I just, I feel like maybe we're even circling back to it, or maybe I'm circling back to it, right? But it's it's just like unavoidable uh, in terms of trying to comprehend how good he's been. You can't really wrap your head around it. Like there's always there's always more rock in front of you to try to wrap around. <laughs> uh, and, and it just, it doesn't land when it comes to him. So you've mentioned even the learners, uh, the Nats really, uh, with their owners, their ownership, uh, the learners, being willing to spend, being willing to to be top heavy and understand what that means and the value it, it has, kind of really uh, embracing not quite stars and scrubs, right? But kind of uh, when it comes to fielding a team like that, are the learners, are their GM, uh, is their GM Mike Rizzo, is he? Are they all ready to set like a, a massive record? I think they are. I mean, my one question with them is they haven't really done it for a position player before i mean they gave big free agent money to jason worth many years ago when they needed him when they wanted him to come in and be kind of that veteran uh you know starter starter pistol for their contender but it wasn't anywhere near the money soto's gonna get and otherwise they've really built around their their pitchers and they've shown that they they're willing to spend for those guys for scherzer and strasburg and now corbin the position players they've let walk harper was one case that it's kind of particular and you could say what you want about Harper kind of being up and down and having such a big public personality that there's, you know, many reasons why he might not be the guy that you want to build, build around. 
But then Rendon was kind of another case where he was, he kind of was a fan favorite, does everything right, works hard, is super uh, consistent, put up year after year of just being a top five third baseman. And they let him walk as well. So the question kind of is, and I'm kind of looking at Trey Turner as a, as a proof of concept here to see, do they extend Turner with big money? Because they haven't done it with position players yet. Now, it does seem like Soto and Turner, to me, that's a, these are the kind of position players you do want to build around, but they haven't done it before. So it's going to be interesting to see if these are the guys for them or if they want to keep trying to find a way to build around their starting pitching. Well, even as you were talking, I thought, you know, would they show a willingness at this point in time to maybe flip their approach to say they, they sign Soto, they lock up Turner. Uh, would they maybe then look to somehow acquire one of the like multitude of amazing shortstops who could hit the market next year and like let Turner play in the outfield to kind of bulk up the offense as Max Scherzer kind of uh, reaches the end of his contract as Steven Strasburg maybe ages into a Scherzer type role uh, in terms of the value or importance to the rotation. And, and we, I mean, every year it feels like it's up in the air for Patrick Corbin and, and how his Velo holds up. But do you think they would maybe lean that way? Or do you think they just like, they really are leaning into pitching because they know how critical that can be? I think they know that p- the pitching is their philosophy. They are pitching first team. So, you know, Mike Rizzo came up, he was a scouting director of the Diamondbacks when they won the world series in 2001. And he saw Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling win that world series. And he has used that as his proof of concept moving forward for his entire career. And it worked again in 2019 with Scherzer and Strasburg and adding Corbin to that group. Like that's, that's what he believes wins championships is starting pitching. And I don't believe that his philosophy will change. Now I do believe that Juan Soto is the rare type of player that you change your, that you make a shift in your philosophy for like, that's kind of the amazing thing about the Nats here is it really does show you how unique a player like Soto is and how different a player like Soto is, even from a superstar like Bryce Harper and Anthony Rendon are superstars in this game, but there is a difference between a superstar and a top five guy, right? Like Trout and Betts and Soto and Tatis. These are guys that you're making exceptions for. And it's easy to get to the place where you want to take any superstar and say, Hey, they should have paid for Bryce Harper, right? Like this is a generational guy. I don't think that Bryce Harper is a generational guy. I think Bryce Harper is a tremendous baseball player. I think he's a, he's a middle of the order bat, but I think the Nats were right in assessing that situation and saying that we can find other guys that he's not necessarily the generational talent that we thought he was. Juan Soto might be that generational talent. And I think that they're willing to make an exception for him and make him the centerpiece of their team moving forward. I think you're dead on. I think what's really unique about the situation, there were really a lot of moving parts when it came to being able to allow Harper to go, right? I mean, he, even as a young left-handed hitter who came up extremely young, just like Soto, he didn't put up the kind of numbers Soto has put up to this point. So there's one thing, because when guys are this good early, they stay this good for a long time, right? That you can project on that. That's like, like really the unicorn type player. Uh, but also like, so you, you have Soto coming up who really does take away uh, from the, the blow, any, any blow Harper leaves you with, right. And in the absent, in his absence on the roster uh, and the, because of he, him playing on the, the minimum, for his contract, it also enabled them to sign Corbin, right? A lot of really 
big moving pieces there. Uh, and I don't know that they really have another generational talent tucked away in the minors that we don't know about yet, right? We, we <laughs> would know about those guys. We know about those guys in A-ball now, really, given uh, that that's really where a lot of scouting focus is right now because after that, you can kind of really assess guys just based on some raw data. Uh, that's what a lot of teams have moved, moved towards, right? So they don't have that guy coming up. They don't have the next Juan Soto. They have Juan Soto now, like you were saying, at 22 years old and, and four months, right? So he's going to play all year at 22. Uh, it just seems like such a unique situation that I, I also am also cheering for Soto to stick around, right? Like you don't, as much fun as it would be to see him hit somewhere else, it's almost like, let him stay there. Let him kind of like uh, just keep building his legend in the space he's already created. Yeah, and I think he will because, I mean, first of all, he he can be like the first guy that's really like Nats baseball through and through, right? The yeah. Nats don't have a long history. He was the guy who helped them get to their first title, right? And and he's he has the, the potential to be kind of to kind of just take over for Ryan Zimmerman as the face of that franchise, but in a way that's actually you know on the level of all national stars, right? And the other thing to think about with with Soto is. You know, we talk all about, we've talked a lot about how uh, AJ Preller of the Padres and the Padres got such goodwill by bringing Tatis up to the majors when they did. And they didn't yeah. send him to AAA, they just brought him right up to the majors. The Nets were well and above that standard with Soto, right? Soto had 35 plate appearances in AA. That's it. Like nobody, the thing was, we didn't it's know like about Soto when Soto was coming up, right? They brought him up so soon that we didn't even have, a, have the chance to talk about him yet. He had 35 plate appearances above high A. Like, and they just went with it. They brought him up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're really right about that because even at that at that point, uh, unless you were really deep into a prospecting circle, the the talk at that time, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it was, it was Soto and Robles and who do you want more, right? Like who, who might have more of an immediate impact? And given the age and kind of the uh, helium into the skill set of Robles, people were leaning that way. And then Soto came up there. It was kind of like, let's see about Soto. Let's see what he does. Yeah. And then he pretty much skipped double A. Like you were saying, he's got, he, he played in eight games there. He, he had 35 <laughs> plate appearances. Uh, he, <laughs> just, just comical stuff. And somehow still have more RBI in, in eight games than uh, games played. He had 10 RBI. <laughs> Just like, you know, tiny comical notes about him and the legend. I'm already imagining in my head like this this kind of uh, Bazooka Joe cartoon uh, little series <laughs> about Juan Soto. Um, well, and he came up and he already was reaching base. He had a 406 on base percentage that season. He had a 517 slugging that season. He was 46% yeah. better than average when he came up. I mean, as an 18-year-old, it just, like this guy there's nothing he hasn't done yet. And and there's just, there's kind of no ceiling on him right now. Yeah. I think if you were like creating your, your superhero, uh, you know, creating your superhero baseball player, taking all of the best things from various superheroes into one player, we're getting really close to Soto. Uh, well, yeah. And season. he's super fun. I mean, the Soto <laughs> shuffle, like he's got the stare down thing. Like yeah. he's not cowed by pitchers. Like he loves to go right at it. Right. After these guys, like there was an article recently, I think it was in mass and sports about like how his, his control of the strike zone isn't even about like discipline. It's about that. Like he just like, he's too stubborn. He does not, he will not swing at a pitch that's outside the strike zone. And he knows it. Like he knows the strike zone so well that he's yeah. just, he won't do it. Yeah. Just, like you, you can't beat this guy. He's so strong. He's so, he has such a good knowledge of the, of the plate. I mean, if there's any, if there's any hitter I want in baseball right now, it's Juan Soto, like bar none. 
I'm with you. I, I feel like I'm falling more in love just by having this conversation. <laughs> and you, like you mentioned, his OBP being like 400 as he came up, right? As a teenager, the league average, just for context, because I, like sometimes I think it's really easy to lose sight of how good these guys are because we don't have the, the context for league average. It was 322 last year. Uh, it was 323 the year before that. And in 2018... It was 318. So you're talking about a guy who whose OBP was like 80 points above average as a teenager. And like you mentioned his shuffle, you mentioned like he's not intimidated at all. It doesn't even rub anybody the wrong way. Like Tatis has his detractors, which I don't particularly agree with. I think he's a blast to watch and he's a lot of fun and a lot of good for baseball. But nobody is barking about what Juan Soto does. If it does, it's like... It's like dropping a pea into the Grand Canyon. Like, you, you, you know, you tiny little green dot, you don't even see it after it leaves somebody's hand. I know, he's got an incredible amount of leeway. And it, I think it's just because he loves, he clearly loves playing the game. He's kind of a fun-loving guy. I mean, I looked at that, just like a photo of the 2019 World Series of the, the uh, not the bat flip, but when he carries the bat down the first baseline and drops yeah. it at, the, at first base, right, mocking Alex Bregman, like... Like what a boss move! Can you? I can't even believe it. Like going back and like I was at those games. I watched that happen live, and still now looking back at it, I'm like, did that happen? Was that? Yeah. Is that possible? Like, he was 20 years old then. What a boss move to just shove it in Alex Bregman's face. And this was before the the sign stealing scandal. Like we didn't even know how much we hated Alex Bregman yet at this point. Right. This is when people still kind of liked Alex Bregman. Right. And he we just had like shoved it in his face, and it was just it was an incredible moment. It was. And like you were saying, we didn't have the context to hate Bregman because we didn't have the, the context to that. It's almost like I knew what was coming interview that came up after after the scandal <laughs> broke for their sign stealing. Uh, so as a final note here on Soto, I'm going to give you a number. You tell me over or under or if I'm just a, a, a prognosticator of, of the nth degree, if I'm dead on. 15 years, 405 million. Under. That number is under. I feel like any number you say to me would be under. <laughs> I feel like I, I can't. I don't know. Fifteen four oh five. That's that's pretty. That's pretty close. But I think that'll be under. I think. I and mean, what's the, what's the AAV on that? Twenty seven million a year. Yeah, I think it's under that. I don't know that he signs for. I don't know that he signs a contract that long. I mean, maybe he does, but I think it's. I think that number is under. I think he's. I think he's definitely going to be over 30 million a season for however long he signs. So you're saying the AAV is under uh, the, the term would be ultimately greater. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I can get behind it. I mean, I, that's what I was saying. And I, I guess I was hinting at it earlier and not really having a, a perfect comp for him. Uh, even as I tried to mold the, the ball of clay, that is his next contract, uh, presuming it's, it's a big time extension it didn't really look right, right? It looked like there had, like something had to come into place. So I could definitely see it being higher than that. I, I was very curious to see what the AAV would be, uh, if it would inch up toward 30 or over. And I, I think that's uh, a really good note. You mentioned Turner. We, we can touch on him really briefly, even just a couple of minutes. I mean, um, my big concern, or not concern, but curiosity when it comes to Trey Turner is that so much of his game is predicated on speed, right? So if he loses a step or two, where does that leave him? Well, it leaves him as a legitimate power hitter. <laughs> like that's 
part of the thing, I mean, Turner is, he's one of the fastest players in the game, has been for as long as he's been in the game, but he's a legitimate, he's a legitimate bat. I think he gets not enough credit for his offensive abilities. He's been 200 ISO guy for two, two years running now. He's been, you know, above average by WRC plus every season of his career since 2016. The problem with Turner has been health. And the biggest problem is that like, he's only really had one full healthy season, 2018. And that wasn't his best season. And this is the problem is like, he's been an incredibly streaky player and we just haven't seen it over a full season. Like last year, he was incredible. 59 games hit 335, 394, 588. He hit a 158 WRC plus. Like he was, he was bonkers. He was so good. And he is so fast and his speed is part of that game, but he has legitimate power too. The question is, can he, can he do it for a full season? And that's why this year is going to be a big year for him. Cause he has one more season of arbitration eligibility next year. And if he gets hurt again this year, it's just hard to see what kind of long-term deal he's going to be able to get. Cause the potential is definitely there. The question is like, is he a guy who is, you know, can really carry your team for weeks at a time and, and we'll have some down, down moments. Or is he really a middle of the order bat, you know, for a, for a full season? Is he that right. kind of guy that you can count on? Cause even like you were saying 2019, he played 122 games, had just as many homers as he did in 162 in his not so hot full season in 2018. And as you were talking, I'm thinking like, can he put it all together? Uh, he's got a dynamic skill set. We might not give him credit for everything that he does. Uh, I thought of Harper. What if he has his one MVP year, right? Where he, he puts up like nine wins in the ledger, but then he's like a three to five win guy. Like, is he, is he a disappointment even though he's still awesome? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, he could be that kind of guy for sure. And the problem is that shortstop is stacked right now, right? I mean, he's, yep. his market, I think the Nats will have a really tough time extending him, even though the Xander Bogarts, Bogarts deal is pretty close. It's It's a pretty good comp for him on the, on the, on the whole, but there's just, it's just hard. I can't imagine Turner signing right now because the market's about to be set so clearly, right? Like Lindor, Trevor Story, Carlos Correa, Javier Baez, Corey Seager. These guys are all going to sign contracts within the next year before Turner's a free agent, right? So you're going to have all these price points that they can lo- then look at. And it's really going to depend on where, you know, where does Turner fit, fit in with those guys? See, I think he's not really considered a top tier shortstop. I think he's kind of considered more middle of the pack, but he can, he can join that top tier with a, with a full healthy, you know, strong season this year. If he puts up a six war season, then we do have to talk to him, talk about him in that, put him in that level. Yeah. It's, it would be impossible to ignore in a free agent setting. And, you know, interestingly, you're, you're talking about where he slots in among all those guys. It really does seem like he will find a middle ground and that, even if he is second tier, that really just speaks to how stacked shortstop is right now. Uh, that to the point where, like, even being below average at shortstop doesn't necessarily mean that you have a bad shortstop. It just means you don't have one of the, like, mo- the again, multitude of incredible shortstops going through baseball right now. Seriously, I'm the top half of the league. They're all potential all stars. Like, I mean, they're they're all there. That's why. I mean, I hate to single out Freddie Galvis, but every year I look at Freddie Galvis, <laughs> whichever team he's starting at, I and mean, I'm like, why? How can you go into the season with Freddie Galvis as your starting shortstop? Yeah. There are so many 
crazy good <laughs> shortstops in the game. If you're going with Freddie Galvis, just you know you've lost. And in this case, you know, the Orioles, they know they've lost. So it's okay. Yeah, it's almost like that's still part of the plan right now. But like, yeah, like you were saying, I got just... to see Galvis keep going. He's, he's fun <laughs> to watch. Uh, yeah, he is. You, you don't quite get credit for him, uh, or he doesn't quite get credit for his game uh, because I think sometimes it can be frustrating at the plate. Uh, which which can tend to shade our, our perspectives. But, uh, you know, there's also a lot of other bigger issues going on through baseball this year. Uh, this year. Oh, goodness. Uh, this past week, right, we had the Framber Valdez injury. Uh, he goes yeah. down with uh, a broken ring finger on his throwing hand, uh, continued to pitch through it, and the we don't have any news, right? The, the, the intimation at this moment in time is that he did ligament damage in continuing to pitch and that he'll be out for the year. Yeah. So now the Astros swoop in. They signed Jake Odorizzi for two years. Interesting term. Uh, that I think that lends itself to to Valdez being out long term. Uh, so, are you surprised by the two years? Does this potentially signal anything about the severity of of Valdez's injury? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I I don't think that it. I think it pushes them to sign the deal now and getting Odorizzi's kind of the long-term security of having him in the in the rotation next year helps for the Astros, but it doesn't block anybody. Like, they have... Grinky's going to be a free agent. McCullers is going to be a free agent. Verlander's going to be a free agent. Like, they have... They're not going to be able to sign all these guys back. They're not going to. They've they've shown that they're not as willing... Or that the Astros have shown that they are very willing to let guys walk in free agency. Yeah. So the fact that they signed Odorizzi... I think it speaks to their long-term strategy, but I don't think it really affects Valdez that much. I mean... If he has surgery, he's going to be out for the season. He's trying to work his way back right now. Even if he gets back, it's, it's not going to be for quite some time. So they needed to fill that rotation spot. I am not an Odorizzi fan. Like, okay, I don't think Odorizzi's that good. I don't think he really helps any rotation that much, frankly. Like, he's going to be five innings of relatively quality pitching for them. But he's, he doesn't really move the needle for me. He does like he steps in nicely so that they don't have too much of a drop off. But Valdez had a much higher ceiling. And it's a, and it's a bummer that he's not going to be there, especially considering how much. I mean, he was one of the, you know, every playoffs, we have a couple of real breakout stars. He was one of them last year. And it's a shame that we don't get to see him this year in particular. After really not being able to control a darn thing in, in the past couple campaigns before that. Right. So it was very fun to watch him break out uh, in a way that like, if you really are upset at the Astros, it's kind of like, man, like he's a lot of fun to watch. You, you're like cheering quietly almost. Uh, and just just for the sake of, of kind of, again, trying to provide some additional context, if you think about the ring finger, uh, it doesn't really have a lot of control on the ball. Like you're not throwing with your ring finger, right? But it does set underneath the ball. It does influence the way that it comes out of your hand. Uh, so I think uh, I'm almost curious too, if it was like his pinky, would it be s- less severe or like maybe splitting hairs, but I feel like it's important to realize that the, the ring finger is helping set the ball as a, you know, the, the guy goes to the plate. Yeah. It's, I mean, we don't think about the ring finger very much <laughs> and it doesn't get enough credit, <laughs> but you need it. You do need your ring finger to throw a baseball. I guarantee you it's, it's an important part, part of the calculation. Uh, ring finger support group we're, we're here for the ring fingers uh you know it's interesting you said you did, you're not really a fan of Odorizzi I feel like he's okay and like uh he's like uh a step up we <laughs> we described JD Davis as and he's fine last week I feel like he's a little bit more than that for a pitcher right like he's had some solid seasons he's 
he, he really kind of broke out a couple of years ago with uh, with Wes Johnson and what he's doing out there with the, with the Twins pitchers. Uh, he put up a four win season. He does seem to give a steady like one sixty uh, hundred sixty innings a year. Uh, he does. I, I I call him like a fancy kitchen sink, right? At times he can have up to six pitches, depending on which uh, classification system you use. He's got at least a four seamer, the splitter, cutter, slider curve. So it's like really a little bit of everything. Uh, he does have kind of a high spin type uh, of a fastball, even though he doesn't throw like top-notch gas, right? The, the spin still helps the fastball play up. Uh, so my question to you, TC, is do you think that Jake Odorizzi takes a step up knowing uh, how the Astros have kind of built this mythos almost uh, about being a, pretty much a development machine? Or do you think he, he is signed to be what he is? In his case, I have to think that he's signed to be what he is because he's not really the Astros type, right? He's not really a super high spin guy. Like he's got, he has okay stuff. And I worry about his ground ball rates. He just, he gets, he gets the ball in the air just all the time. And there's some variability there that I worry about, but he's, he doesn't really fit the profile of an Astros type, right? Like when they traded for Aaron Sanchez a couple years ago, he was like, oh man, and Sanchez, Aaron Sanchez is perfect for them. He's yeah. high spin fastball, high spin curveball guy. Like they're gonna figure him out. I don't know that I feel the same way about Odorizzi, but and and then also like if they had some secret sauce ready for him, then I feel like they would have signed him weeks ago, right? He's been out there. So if they really felt like this is a guy that they can turn into a top of the rotation arm, they would have locked him in well before this point. I think they've signed him now because they think he can eat up, you know, 120 to 150 innings, and he can be fine right for them in the middle right. of the rotation and and you know like you're saying he's not really bumping any big name out Luis Garcia would have been in that fifth slot Luis Garcia one of numerous young players with that same name this yeah. year uh he, <laughs> the Nationals have one I think the Phillies have one in their system um baseball prospectus I I, I had just written him up for a piece uh, about uh, the, the concept of handcuffing running backs in fantasy football and, and kind of applying it to pitchers this year with the next man up mentality. Uh, and, and in the annual this year for BP, he gets talked up as uh, the least recognizable name of the group uh, who all has the same name. Uh, but he, you know, just a, as an interesting note, he struck out more than 35% of hitters across multiple levels of A-ball in 2019. Uh, he did repeat just solid A-ball, so you can kind of expect uh, to be buoyed a little bit. But when he went up to a the high A, he struck out even more guys. So uh, he threw the 12 innings in the majors last year. Um, just an interesting note, right? Because we, we were excited for Framber Valdez for the same reasons. We're excited for uh, Christian Javier for the same reasons. We're, we could be excited about Luis Garcia, that the Astros just find guys who can pitch. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has a chance. I'd like, like to see what he can do. But it doesn't, again, it doesn't bode really well for them that they're signing order easy instead. And, and I mean, you need right. depth, so that's always going to be... He'll get he'll get his turn, but he's not somebody that I would say that I'm overexcited for, especially given the signing here. So you know, on that note, with with having covered the Astros, there was a bit of a, a bit more news that the Brewers signed Jackie Bradley Jr. and kind of a, a similar move to Odorizzi for offense, right? Like two years, is it a good move? Who plays who plays center between him and and Lorenzo Cain? Yeah, I mean it's a good move. I mean he's better than. Uh, Garcia, which is really who he's replacing. I mean, the bad move was signing Garcia to a $10 million 
plus deal last year. You're talking Avisel Garcia, right? Avisel Garcia, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, this is such a perfect market correction for the Brewers because they signed Avisel Garcia, who they hoped would be a decent right fielder, and instead ended up being a horrible center fielder for them last year. Now they're signing a center fielder with the hopes of him being a, an above-average right fielder, pretty much. Like Craig Council has said that Lorenzo Cain is his center fielder. I think both will end up playing center. I mean, Cain is coming back after opting out last year. He's already had a little bit of an injury. They're not sure he's going to be ready by opening day. So I think you'll end up seeing both of them, both of them out there. Both of them are, are clearly capable. I, I'm not sure I care which one plays actually up the <laughs> middle, but uh, I think are it's a saying? fine signing for them. But you do kind of look at the Brewers and you want to, you want to be like, oh, their defense is great. That gives them a real market advantage, except that the Cardinals are in the same division and the Cardinals have like an insane defense with a better offense. So it just, it's, it's hard to really fall in love with the Brewers right now. They feel like a uh, uh, little bit of a watered down NL central raise and how they operate, right? Like they kind of do things their own way. They, they patch things together in this funky seeming way. And then it pretty much works well yeah. by and large each season. But uh, it, to me, it feels a little opportunistic, like, well, we can add a few wins here uh, and maybe we'll get them. Maybe we'll be able to have him play up. We'll, we'll be able to kind of l- reduce his exposure where he might be weak uh, and and just tuck in a couple of wins away here. Um, yeah, and he's not bumping anybody. I mean, they, he's no. better than the other guys they had. So it's a good deal from that from that perspective. Uh, just a couple of quick notes here. Nate Pearson won't be ready to start the season. Ross Stripling is in. Do you have any hot takes on uh, Ross Chicken Strip Stripling? Ross Stripling is going to be better than Nate Pearson ever could be. <laughs> <laughs> I like Ross Stripling fine. We'll see. I don't know. He has been he was good for the Dodgers for many years before being horrible last year. But, yep. you know, uh, his I think it was his curveball last year. Just got no swing and miss. So we'll see. It's a full stable season pitching with the, with the Jays, we'll see what happens. I mean, Pearson will come back and take his spot. I think it'll be a short-term thing. The question is, can Pearson stay healthy? Yeah, and I, I don't know that he can, right? Like, he's really getting a reputation as a young guy, kind of just young, big guy who kind of gets dinged up a little bit here and there. Yeah. So I would love to see him stay healthy. I hope he does. But uh, I'm curious what Stripling does in the meantime. I think he actually had the most drop on his curveball in his career last year which is by like a couple of inches. Hmm. So between the, the fastball he throws, again, not a high-octane guy, like 92, 93, yeah. uh, when he's not like pulling back and, and you know, the last-ditch effort fastball. The difference between the two pitches was like 20 inches. I'm wondering now as we talk, is maybe that was like too much. Maybe that was like he needs to temper the pitches in a little bit so the hitters can't see it so easily. I wonder if that was part of the problem with, with Ross Stripling. Yeah, I hope you're listening, Ross. There's a... <laughs> Pro tip for you. And if it doesn't work, uh, just remember, uh, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a coach. <laughs> uh, I'm just a guy. Um, Zach Britton out three to four months. How do you feel about that with the Yankees pen? We've talked about how incredible their pen is lined up, and now, like, pretty big hit, right? Yeah, that's that's really too bad. I mean, he'll be out probably most of the first half. I mean, good thing they signed Justin Wilson. I mean, the, that good signing looks even better now, but it's just too bad. And it is a bit of a blow for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and one one other note, I guess we, we've gotten a history so far, a brief history of ending on kind of downers. Farce Whitley's going to be out with Tommy John. Well, is, is this guy ever going to catch a break? I don't know. I don't I don't see. I don't see why. It doesn't seem like the baseball gods care for Forrest Whitley much. It's just too bad. I mean, he was he was so high up on this. People were so positive about him. 
and then it's just been all downhill. And this is this is a big blow for sure. A hundred percent. So really, by and large, that'll do it for us this week. So thrilled to have been back with you. So thrilled to be back with you next week. Uh, TC, where can everybody find you online? Well, you can find me uh, in low A, where I will be watching the electronic strike zones be implemented and uh, just waiting for my, my chickens to come home to roost. <laughs> also at MLB Trade Rumors and at TC Zanka on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, but check low A first. Uh, <laughs> and you can find me, of course, at Tim Jackson Says on Twitter. You can find me at PitcherList Baseball Prospectus for uh, PitcherList for both of us. Uh, baseball Prospectus for me. You can email us at BreakingPodPL at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and, and answer a question or two. And until next week, we'll see you then. <laughs>